Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Future Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Juliet Lamar, and we have joining us today, Adam Colton. He is the lead business strategist at the Quantum Resistant Ledger. Welcome, Adam. Thank you for having me. So, Adam, why don't you go ahead and give us a little insight into uh, QRL? Right. So, um, QRL, or the Quantum Resistant Ledger, um, sort of does what it says on the tin. Uh, We are developing a blockchain um, platform uh, that is resistant to both traditional and quantum computing attacks. Um, Blockchain technology is obviously a very new and novel technology, and um, we want to make sure that it is secure looking forward and not just in the present. So I guess for people who who maybe need a little more insight, why is something like this needed? You know, how did this, how this, how this come about? Well, um, to sort of start broad and then work my way more more specifically, um, you know, encryption underlies all technology networks, whether it's something like a social media network, your email, um, literally anything that, that that's a network is is guarded by some type of encryption to ensure that the data that's being transmitted between users um, is actually the data they want to transfer and isn't just widely available to any anybody with nefarious intent. Um, you can go back, you know, all the way to the Renaissance, tracing the the sort of back and forth cat and mouse game of code makers and code breakers. Um, and quantum computing is simply the next technological iteration of this back and forth. Now, blockchain technology obviously has a lot of uh, things going for it with decentralization. Individual users, individual node operators have an immense degree of control over their their funds and the the knowledge that surrounds that, namely um, the private key that allows them to access their wallet. And that's wonderful. That's why we love this technology. It it is largely enabling of the uh, atomic user. However, one of the costs of that um, sort of independence, if you will, of the user is that because there's a lack of centralization, the entire network cannot switch certain elements of it very quickly. And one of those elements is the cryptographic element that secures the, um, the signature scheme, the public key, private key pair. So this creates an issue when talking about encryption because, you know, for example, I use Gmail for my personal email um, and just use that as a stand-in. If Google were to change their backend security for their Gmail uh, network, you know, I wouldn't even necessarily know when I logged in. They don't need to ask me mm-hmm. for my password. They already know it. Um, they have absolute access and absolute control as a central operator. Uh, blockchain technology does not have that sort of god admin, if you will, or central um, operator with absolute control. And so, therefore, if if a legacy blockchain wants to change its signature scheme um, across its entire network, every single user would not only need to to consent, but to actively participate in that migration. And so, it very quickly. Um, creates a problem of scale in dealing with this issue. And so any attempt to um, sort of get ahead of the encryption curve in this blockchain space needs to sort of start getting the ball rolling quite early because there's a lot of very unique technical challenges um, to it. No, absolutely. And and a lot of things are happening that, like you mentioned with the Gmail example, you know, so we just, it, it changes and we have no idea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there is, there are benefits and costs 
to any type of network, whether it be decentralized, centralized, a hybrid model, um, or what have you. And, uh, and there's always a push and pull. I mean, obviously, the centralized networks, while they're more dynamic in, in changing their security apparatus, in many ways, you know, obviously, when you put everything um, connected to one hub, compromisation of that hub then compromises all the spokes you know, emitting from it. Um, so there's sort of push and pull in anything. It's like, uh, it's like with money. Would you rather have it in a bank where it's all in one place, but a bank can get robbed? Or would you rather you know, spread it out in, in a bunch of holes in the ground or something like that? Um, there are benefits and in, in, in costs to any, to any system. Absolutely. Uh, give us a little bit of background about yourself. You know, how did you get involved uh, with Quantum Resistant Ledger and, and your background in the, in the whole world of this? Yeah, well, um, so my, uh, in blockchain, most people have, have I've I found a, uh, a nonlinear journey to where they end up. And I, I certainly fall into that category. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, I was, uh, I never quite heard of blockchain, like heard of Bitcoin. I don't think I'd actually heard the word blockchain. Um, I've always been interested in sort of new technology, but I don't actually have a technical background myself. My, uh, my degrees are in anthropology and American studies, so social sciences, very, very far from um, from where I am now. Um, and yeah, I basically, you know, had some friends that were, were into blockchain and into cryptocurrency, and you know, telling me, you know, you got to read up on this. This is the future. Um, I was in law school at the time, so I was on a very different life path. Eventually, I, just, I realized I was not going to make a good lawyer. So I, I stopped going to law school and, um, you know, I was at a crossroads in my life. I was in my middle 20s. Uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, aside from that, I didn't want to do what I'd been doing up to that point. Um, and so I started doing research. I started trying to sort of learn about this technology, see if there was a place for me um, in this industry. And one thing that sort of jumped out at me um, was that you could really trade this stuff. The, the, the markets were open 24-7. So my first few months in cryptocurrency was trading, was being a trader. Um, eventually, I realized that you know one of the things you learn very quickly when you trade cryptocurrency is that uh, communication from a lot of projects is very opaque. And the way um, language is used in this space is clearly oftentimes from people that know a lot, talking to people that don't know as much. And there's there's friction there and there's gaps in understanding. Um, and so I recognize that while I can't you know sit down and program a blockchain, I can't build a DAP, um, I can explain these processes to people potentially. And so um, you know, QRL had to uh, had to part ways with the previous um, person that was handling their sort of marketing communications. I didn't even intend to get the job. I just wanted to sort of help this project that I'd been trading and very interested in. Um, I wanted to help them succeed. And so I helped, uh, you know, write up a little document being like, hey, ask the, the person that you're going to hire to replace the guy you got rid of. Um, ask them these questions to make sure that they know what they're doing. Because I had worked in marketing before I went to law school. Um, and they basically you know, took that, thought about it, and then came back to me and were like, hey, would you like to do this instead? Because we already sort of know you, there's a bit of a rapport there, and clearly you know sort of what you're talking about. Uh, and then, you know, that was pretty much all she wrote. We were negotiated a salary, and I've been working for the project ever since um, September of last year. Wow, that's a, you know, I'm finding a lot of people who are involved in this space come from such different backgrounds. You know, a lot of people are not necessarily coming from a technological background, but that doesn't mean they can excel in this in this type of business. Yeah, I mean, so one of my personal heroes is Carl Sagan. Uh, 
scientist from the 20th century. Um, and he would talk a lot about, you know, science and, and, how, and not just the understanding of it, but also the teaching of it. One of the things he credited with, with his facility for teaching people science and scientific concepts was that it wasn't very easy for him to learn them. When he was in college, he was a good student, but he wasn't the guy that could walk into a physics classroom and, you know, see a, a long um, formula written on the board and just have it click instantly. He really needed to sit there and study it very, you know, piece by piece and, and sort of procedurally move forward. And he said that that experience really helped him um, explain it to other people because it was never intuitive for him. And I, I can definitely say that it, blockchain has not been intuitive for me. Um, you know, it took sort of a very, uh, it was very slow at the beginning learning about this technology. And so when I'm talking to other people that also are not technical, um, I think there's a facility of, of explanation there because I, I know exactly what they do and don't know in many cases because I was in their shoes um, at one point. No, absolutely. And that gives you a little bit of empathy to to what they may be, may be going through in their mind. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of new vocabulary in this space. There's words that may be familiar, used in unfamiliar ways. And, um, and a lot of times when very technical people explain blockchain, they get very understandably sort of concerned with the details and making sure that every detail is presented completely accurately. And sometimes the bigger concepts kind of get uh, lost. You can't see the forest for the trees, if you will. Mm -hmm. So getting back to QRL, you've got a lot of, uh, you know, different, different, I wouldn't say products potentially, but why don't you go ahead and, and launch into a little bit of, you know, mainnet, testnet, some of those things that you have. And I believe you also have tokens. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'll, I'll sort of go across everything you said there. So, yeah. So right now we have a, a test network. Um, it is functional, though it is not um, entirely on a day-to-day -day basis up to date because we are also going through a security audit. Uh, so obviously there's a separate test network that the security auditors are interacting with and changes um, for anything they may find happens first on their network before we push it out to the main test network. But um, but generally you can see a reasonably representative state of the project by looking at our test network on GitHub as we're we're a totally open source project, so um, so everything you know that is fit for public consumption is is up there on our GitHub. Um, we are, like I said, in the process of a security audit, which is one of the very last steps before launching a main network um, in this space. As we're a token, well, we are a token now. We will be a coin, but as as a project that's very concerned with security in this space, um, you know, it's really not a thing we could afford. To, uh, to skimp out on a security audit at the end. Obviously, if you're trying to bring more security to a space and you launch and then there's a day zero vulnerability discovered, um, that sort of hurts your ability to act as a, uh, an advocate for security in the space. Mm -hmm. um, so we definitely want to launch in as solid a state as possible, but we are, uh, we're very close to that point, luckily. Um, in terms of tokens, uh, currently we are an ERC-20 token that, are, that is uh, on its way um, to migrating to our mainnet token, obviously, <laughs> as, we, as we're leaving the Ethereum mm -hmm. network. Um, but then when we launch, you will be able to spin up the tokens on our network. Uh, we're calling them QRTs, quantum resistant tokens. Um, and while we will not have smart contract functionality at launch because we want to get the get the actual network up and running um, and not hold it up for anything else, one of the first things we're going to be pursuing as a project in terms of um, features we're going to add after launch is smart contract functionality. Obviously, tokens become a lot more useful, dynamic, and interesting when they can be paired with a smart contract. Very cool. Very cool. And what can you explain a little bit about um, ECDSA? ECDSA? <laughs> I think it's a, 
elliptic curve digital signature algorithm. I know that you use this yeah. uh, in QRL. Yeah, it seems really interesting. Go ahead and dive into that. I've never uh, actually heard it referred to as a SCADA. I may have to start <laughs> doing that. I saw the ECDSA, but it is a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> um, no, that's that, that's interesting. But yeah, so uh, so elliptic um, yeah elliptic curve cryptography. Um, is the most common form of signature scheme in the blockchain space today. It is what Bitcoin uses. It is what Ethereum uses. It is what all forks and derivatives of those coins use, as well as most other independent um, cryptocurrencies. And this makes total sense. Uh, ECDSA is based on, you know, a type of cryptography that's been around for quite a while and has been quite secure for that for that time period. Um, it's based on a central assumption, elliptic curve cryptography, that is. And that assumption is that um, traditional computers cannot factor very large numbers very effectively. And that's completely true. Um, traditional computers can factor numbers, but inefficiently. And when you get to very, very large numbers, they cannot do it in what I would consider a human amount of time, you know, under a thousand or many thousands of years. Um, and so the cryptography is, you know, is sound in that in that way. Uh, however, quantum computers sort of are the fly in the ointment in this case, um, in the sense that they are very different than traditional computers. There are a lot of things traditional computers are great at that quantum computers are very poor at, and vice versa. And one of those tricks that quantum computers, once they are sufficiently powerful enough, um, is going to be very, very good at is factoring quite large numbers. So this obviously uh, undermines the central and primary security assumption of elliptic curve cryptography. Um, you know, organizations like the NIST and the NSA have both released documents and or statements in the past couple of years, sort of um, vaguely talking about the need to move away from certain types of elliptic curve cryptography uh, in light of this. Because the problem with quantum computing um, coming after your data if you will, is, is twofold. One is obviously the sort of, um, you know, kind of like a hacker's movie or something where you're intercepting data packets in real time to manipulate them or to substitute with your own. Um, that's not terribly common. What, what, is, what is much more likely to have happen is that quantum computers will go after old data, stored data, data servers. Um, in the blockchain context, you know, being able to data mine previous transactions and, and Obviously, the holy grail is being able to un un unlock somebody's private key without them knowing and stealing their funds. Um, but when you're talking about encryption, it's not just a real-time thing. It's also about protecting sort of the past because um, data mining can be, can be used to many nefarious ends. And so it's one of those things that uh, when you have these organizations like the NSA who <laughs> – in their own way, have sort of an interest in undermining people's data uh, privacy, coming out and saying, hey, if you want to keep things um, really secure, you should think about maybe moving away from elliptic curve cryptography and indeed doing that themselves for their own documents above a, uh, a certain level of, um, of security clearance. I mean, that's one of those, in my opinion, one of those sort of canary in the coal mine moments. Um, when you have a, a state security agency feeling it's okay to tell the public that a, a certain encryption method is out, is on its way out. I wonder how long they've felt that way internally. Mm -hmm. This is a very interesting question because there has to be a motivation behind everything, right? And uh, and everything is so strategic. It's not out of the blue. Generally, that's my opinion. That yeah, that uh, the three-letter organizations, of the American government, tend tend. Unfortunately, not always, but they tend to not do things rashly. Um, and certainly, when it comes to talking about uh, security protocols for for data storage and and transmit. Um, I would imagine, yeah, that was probably a pretty calculated uh, move. 
So give us a little bit of insight into, you know, the future of QRL. What are some of the things that we can look for in the next next few years? Well, like I was saying initially, we're trying to build um, a rock-solid platform. I like to use the metaphor of a house. Um, if you're building a house, it's wonderful if you can have a beautiful bedroom and a beautiful master bathroom on the second floor. But what's a little bit more important, in my opinion, in the opinion of the QRL project, is having a rock-solid foundation. If your foundation is you know, absolutely solid, then you can build something on top of it that maybe doesn't even work out, but you can just tear it down and build something new atop it. Whereas conversely, if you have a, a leaky foundation, it doesn't matter how beautiful the house atop it is, eventually it's going to fall over. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, we think security, if you're talking about layers of a blockchain or layers of a network, um, like a layer cake, we think the bottom layer needs to be the most secure because you know, baseline security can't be improved upon at higher layers. You can't um, insert a necessary security element to a level of a network that is not the, the most basic level and have it be respected at all levels, I mean, obviously. So, you know, if there's a, a, a triangle, if you will, in the blockchain space of speed, security, and flexibility, where you can never really do all three to their, to their maximum end, and you kind of have to pick one or two. Um, we at QRL have tried initially to focus primarily on, on security with um, flexibility and speed being important, but being you know, secondary concerns initially. Um, that's sort of where we've prioritized our focus. And if people want to you know, start using QRL, they want to mention finding out more about about you guys, how what's the best way to get in touch and to learn more contact? Um, so the easiest way to find all the information you might want to know about uh, the quantum resistant ledger is going to theqrl.org. Um, it's our website. It is our is our main hub. It has links to you know our social media, um, our community hub, our YouTube. It has our white paper and FAQ um, and emails for for everything from looking for more information to I'm a blockchain developer and, you know, I want to get, you know, start rooting into your GitHub, but I have some specific questions. We have all that contact information on our website. Fantastic. Adam, thank you so much for joining us here today and giving us a little bit of insight into uh, into QRL and and just the, the world in general of, of all of this, this new technology coming out. Thank you very much for having me. That is Adam Colton. He is the lead business strategist at the Quantum Resistant Ledger. Thank you all so much for tuning in. This has been Juliet Lamar with Future Tech Podcast. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review and discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.